This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thanks for coming. Yes, despite rain and, and uh, plague, as we were talking about this. Rain and plague. <laughs> um, so uh, let me just introduce um, our guest and myself briefly. My name is Alenda Chang, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Film and Media Studies. And our distinguished guest is the director of the film that you just saw, Jennifer Bagewell. And nice. Did I do it? Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, and so I have the honor and the privilege of um, just having a discussion it. with you for the next half an hour or so, and then we will uh, open it up and hopefully take a few questions from you. <laughs> So uh, I thought we could start with the notion of the Anthropocene, which has been very fruitful for um, scholars in um, many environmental disciplines, including the humanities and the sciences. Um, but that it, I was um, just saying that it's a very double-edged thing where um, it draws attention to the scale of the problem, but at the same time um, sort of mo- makes us look grand <laughs> at the same time. So I wondered if you could talk about that concept and why you started there? So there are a couple of things around that. I mean, in, in, when Ed Bertinsky and I were in, uh, in Washington, when, when Watermark, the second film in this trilogy of films, was playing, and he said, should we do something together again? And we were kind of, oh, I don't know. And, and I said, what about the Anthropocene? Nobody knows what that word means, and in that at that time, it really was not a known word. You would we would go to screenings and ask people if they knew, and maybe two or three people would put their hands up in an audience. And so there was this idea of of, of how do we um, the interdisciplinarity of it was really interesting. It, the idea of taking we were inspired by the research of these scientists of the Anthropocene Working Group who are a a collection of scientists, not just archaeologists, but biologists, sorry, not just geologists, but biologists, archaeologists, um, earth system scientists, Mm -hmm. who have been doing this investigation for 12 years of human impact on the planet. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of kind of looking at their work and saying, how can we make this accessible to an ordinary to ordinary people that was the challenge but even within those groups and the international commission on stratigraphy which will eventually do the vote to decide whether we are in the anthropocene epoch whether we have left the holocene or not and there's a huge debate in that group of you know this is we're we're being very anthropogenic by naming an epoch after ourselves number 1 number 2 that it's more a cultural thing it's not geology it's not in the rocks so why why can't we have it like the renaissance why does it have to be a geological term so there's swirling debate on the one hand and then there's this critique of the concept on the other that is also Fascinating. Like people say it should be called capitalocene, not anthropocene, because there's a very small percentage of people uh, on the earth who actually are responsible for most mm-hmm. of the impact, and a lot of people who are experiencing that impact. Um, or there's feminist critiques, there's indigenous critiques, and so all of that swirls around in some way. And yet, Elizabeth Colbert in The Sixth mm-hmm. Extinction. Mm-hmm said that if, if it is ratified as an epoch, 
every geology textbook in the world will immediately become obsolete. And I thought, <laughs> that's interesting. If, if it can penetrate to that level where we're reading about ourselves and the fact that we as a species, some more than others, now change the earth more than all natural processes combined, that's a lot. Um, and there's something about the recognition of that fact that I think is quite powerful. Yeah, that's great that you mentioned some of the alternatives that, that have been um, offered, including uh, capitalocene. I think I've heard plantationocene, which is the agricultural sort of version, sure. but also anthro- uh, obscene, like obscene. <laughs> um, so you can pick your favorite, I suppose. So Cthulhucene is another one um, by Donna Haraway. And so that's cool. I guess you'll have to make five more films. <laughs> or make a film just about the debate. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, so I do have to indulge a bit in the sort of uh, visual element and ask you how many of these um, incredibly stunning shots were achieved. And um, having gone back to look at your earlier work, including manufactured landscapes and watermark, um, I wanted to ask about... Um, how has the technology shifted that you're using? Is it more drones? Uh, I know we have a special guest in our audience. Well, there is somebody in our audience <laughs> who, in fact, was responsible for quite a lot of the, well, certainly all of the aerial uh, work that we did with drones, and then cinematography as well. That's Mike Greed, who's sitting right there in the white shirt. Very happy that he's here. Um, and he's an incredibly valuable part of our team, and we've been working with him for what he was with us on uh, on watermark and we and 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 the films that we've done in between and uh, but it, it's interesting because talking about critique of the Anthropocene, there is a critique of of Anthropocene imagery or representation that it is aerial, that it is mm-hmm. often diagrammatic, it's the God's eye view from above. Mm-hmm. And it allows this kind of distance, this kind of omniscience that is really not the same thing as being in these places. And I think that um, certainly uh, in Watermark, especially for Ed Bertinsky, he started to do much more aerial photography because he said you could only understand watersheds from above. They're so big, you can really only understand them when you see the whole picture. Mm-hmm. But the that sort of dovetails with our Nick's and my work as documentary filmmakers and the ethic of our work and the ethics of our work where um, the two things. You can only understand scale when you are constantly pairing it with detail and where you're above but you're down on the ground and you're mm-hmm. in a place, you're saturated in a place. And I think that that dialectic is a huge part of our work mm-hmm. and it's also part of the ethics of our work because when you travel all over the world... Um, you know, it's very arrogant to assume that you can convey anything about any place um, that that you are not of, um, and 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 it is all also an aggressive act to put a camera in somebody's face, mm-hmm. and so mitigating that power imbalance and finding a way of authentically being in these places that we are not of, um, and and which is essentially humility, like going being <laughs> humble in these places and, and, and relinquishing control, which is a very difficult mm-hmm. thing for people to do, especially when there's a lot of money on the line and you have a crew and you're paying, you know, you've got... Uh, but really just 
being there and and feeling that place and trying to uh, be open to conveying some kind of truth about that place, which always involves real interaction and a kind of authentic exchange of vulnerability with the the people or indeed other species in some way who are in in those contexts. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that actually because this time when I was watching, I was paying attention to things like um, elevation of the camera and and felt at many points that it was almost like you were taking a non-human perspective in some ways that sometimes it seemed to be trailing people like a dog (laughs) and at other times it seemed to be um, definitely too tall for a human perspective, and I don't right. know if this is intentional or sort of a just <laughs> well, like an elephant's eye view. Or right. A, right. I remember when the the for me the the sequence in the London Zoo. I mean the the Zoological Society of London and that whole area with these species that are at risk. They're either endangered, critically endangered, or extinct in the wild. And when I was trying to tell Nick why I wanted to go there, he was just like, "We're not going to a zoo. You want me to film in a zoo? I can't do that." And I said, come on, Nick, like, it, it, re- just indulge me here. And so we went. And I feel like it is kind of the emotional a- apex of the film in some way to be sort of communing with these creatures that are, are gone. And then you see, you know, people like the mountain chicken frog mother, the person who has been raising these mountain chicken frog babies for two years, to slowly be reintroduced into the, into the wild, taken to the Caribbean, put in a tent at night, taken out during the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an incredibly painstaking, um, long process to do this. And I felt like we have to show that. If we're going to try to talk about what extinction is, this is extinction. And it connects back to mm-hmm. uh, the elephants and the ivory burn, which, which feels like an apocalyptic moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels apocalyptic, but in fact, it is this incredibly positive act of, of burning this ivory and saying there is no market for it. Right, period. exactly. Um, I think the scholar Tom Van Doren, who does animal studies work, actually has this interest in extinction and how we as humans are the only ones that could come up with the levels of extinction, right. including de-extinction, the possibility for de-extinction. Right, but, right. but things like functionally extinct or extinct in the wild and yeah. all these shadings for something um, for that loss. we imagine. Yeah, it's a bright line. But um, It's I, interesting because geology, one of the sort of limitations of geology and this idea of, of looking for evidence in the strata. So some of these, you know, urban archaeologists will argue that the landfill, like you see in the Dandora landfill, will eventually become lithified into strata. That will become rock mm-hmm. and it will be all human. The human signal will be there. Um, but one of the limitations of geology is that it can't really measure extinction. You can't just look at what's absent. Uh, and so it becomes this uh, this limit in terms of one of the biggest hallmarks of the Anthropocene is extinction, but it's very difficult to convey in a geological uh, framework. Mm-hmm. Well, it's difficult to convey absence in general. Exactly. Um, I have a few more questions. I'm sorry, and I'll try to open it up. But um, I've been wanting to ask this ever since I first saw Manufactured Landscapes, and I'm sure you get this all the time, where... Um, you make um, environmental degradation look so beautiful. <laughs> or, or yeah. in, you know, in the case of that, e-waste or something like that. And so, you know, that sort of, I guess it's similar to the earlier question, but um, that sort of danger of aestheticization um, and how you deal with that, because um, maybe the right term is from 
aesthetics and it's the sublime where it's meant to convey both wonder and terror. But I thought maybe if you could speak to that. You know, the, the, it, it's certainly something that, a criticism that gets leveled at Ed a lot. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking about that, l- looking at his photographs, that there is this, you know, his photograph can hang in the boardroom of a mining company and it can hang in the environmentalist office who is fighting against that mining company. And a lot of people would find that to be an intolerable ambiguity. And I think actually that ambiguity is what is at the heart of the power of that work. And for us, there was always this attempt, um, especially in that moving back and forth between scale and detail in the film and also this in manufactured landscapes of questioning what frame you're looking at. Are you looking at the real world? Are you looking at our camera's eye view of the real world? Are we looking at Ed's camera's eye view of the real world? Are we looking at a still of Ed's in a gallery that somebody is looking at? So you, you want to always be aware of that in documentary. Documentary is all about the politics of representation. Um, but on the other hand, if, if you don't draw people in, um, they're not going to listen to you. <laughs> and, and so there's this kind of, it's true, there's a kind of aesthetic seduction mm-hmm. that takes you into these places that you're responsible for but would never normally see or you're connected to but would never normally see. And, and then it allows you to be in that place without judgment. And that, that really is mm-hmm. what I think the photographs can do really well. Mm-hmm. But also in, in a time-based medium of film, we can do that even more powerfully in, in an emotional way, in a visceral way, and an intellectual way to move people. And, for example, like Norilsk is something that we bring up because Norilsk is the, um, you know, it, 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 it has the largest supply of palladium in the world, which is in all of our cell phones. So the chances are that our cell phones in this room, and I'm assuming that most of us have one, has palladium in it from Norilsk. Mm. Who would ever go to Norilsk? You can't even go there as a Russian citizen. You can't go, you, you can't, you have to make, have special But it's such you know, a happy permission. company town. Oh, well, you have to have special permission to go. <laughs> and it took us a year to get in there. Oh. Um, and, and we went under an artist visa. Mm. We got arrested because we interviewed the women in the copper smelter oh. who were crane operators, and I was just, you know, I, I wanted to talk to them because I wanted to learn about their life. And then instantly they said, well, only journalists interview people, artists don't interview people. And we got into this semantic <laughs> argument of, well, what, what's an artist, what's a journalist? What, like, are we allowed to talk to people, are we not? And, and, uh, but that is a, a, an example of taking you to a place that you would never see or never go to. And I think that if that place was horrific or if it was presented in a way that was um, sort of immediately a a polemic saying to you, you are responsible for this place, people would turn away. Or if it was just unrelenting degradation, you would also turn away in despair. So it's a bigger conversation to have Mm -hmm. if you can move people and shift consciousness that way and that leads to change instead of a a direct exhortation to action. Mm -hmm. Um, So apologies for continuing to invoke your entire body of work or at least these these trilogy of films that you did with Nick DePossier and Edward Bertinsky. And Um, Mike. Oh yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I do think um, I've always enjoyed how the films offer this sort of 
commentary on the photography and across media. Uh, like there's a moment in Watermark where you're watching um, Ed's book be printed in this German printing factory while he's while the narration is talking about his relationship to nature and there seems to be an irony that's sort of left to you and I've always appreciated that um, what you're able to do and then back in the green room I had to actually ask a naive question which was how much of this was any of this based on on Britinsky's photography because of the satellite some of that aerial imagery so in this film, for the first time, we really decided not to... Uh, because Ed has been learning to be a film director. Like, he wanted to... Mm. He co-directed Watermark, which... And we were still quite separate in that film in terms of he's taking photographs, um, we're doing the yeah. filming. Mm-hmm. And here, because this this was not just a film. it was It's a museum exhibition. Right. It's two books, and it's a, an educational program. So in the museum exhibition, we have... Uh, well, we did 360 VR. We did augmented reality. So literally in this exhibition, you will be standing with an iPad or your phone, and through an app, it will trigger a, a sculpture, a virtual sculpture of the biggest tusk pile before it was burned. And that involved taking thousands of photographs of this pile and stitching them together in software, and then developing the app that could work to trigger this virtual sculpture. And so everywhere we went, we were shooting for all of those things at the same time. Photographs, Mm -hmm. film installations, the movie, um, the 360 VR, and, and the augmented reality. And so it was quite complicated in terms of like wearing all of these different hats all of the time. So we were working together and we did the research together. We researched for about a year before we even Mm. started to shoot um, using all of the Anthropocene Working Group's categories of research as our categories Mm -hmm. and saying, well, what is the most iconic example of anthroturbation? Let's go to the biggest railway tunnel in the world. What is the most iconic example of terraforming of the earth? Let's go to the biggest uh, open pit uh, coal mine in Germany. I feel like we all now have great cocktail party trivia, like, um, did you know there was this word, anthroturbation? I can tell you what it is. (laughs) Or the bagger. I have to tell people that the bagger, which is the biggest land machine on the planet, actually has a Lego. Um, You can buy it. It, You can put it together in Lego. I know. And we got it because I thought, well, we have to do this or film somebody doing it. And nobody could figure out how to put it together. So we had to give it to an an eight-year-old. We did. We gave it to an eight-year-old boy and said, you do it. You have it. Anyway. (laughs) That's excellent. Um, So I I actually, I have some questions um, about... You know, you were saying earlier the the ability to sort of fly all around the world and to do these projects that are very um, kind of mechanically intensive and air mile intensive and, and all data carbon. intensive, carbon intensive, right? And 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 the constant weighing of the benefits and sort of concept and the, the costs. If you just have thoughts about the, the sustainability of production. Oh, God. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I have insomnia, and, and when I wake up in the middle of the night and start fretting, that's one of the things that I fret about, which is, is the carbon footprint even worth whatever awareness is being raised by this project? And, and, and I go back and forth on it. Sometimes I think yes, and sometimes... I think no. I mean, there was a a Buddhist monk when somebody asked him, what can I do to save the planet? And he said, go to sleep. Mm 
That was his answer. Oh. <laughs> and, and I get that. You mean like sleep or like no, sleep? No, I mean like sleep. <laughs> Just stop End doing of- stuff. Okay. Stop doing stuff. Stop using up energy. And so I will say, and I, I'm not invoking this as a, uh, an excuse, but all of our, everything to do with that project, and since we actually physically could do it, which was the payback film we made with Margaret Atwood, we have offset all of our production. Mm-hmm. So we carbon offset everything, not just the, the travel and the production, but the post-production, the release. Mm-hmm. I've, this trip is offset. Yeah. So the, 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 the work that we do in promotion of it, I mean, and it's not enough. Like, really, it's <laughs> not, but it's something. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's one thing. But it, it doesn't... I don't know the answer... To that, I mean, I, I I do know that the exhibition is traveling now around Europe. It will it it's mm-hmm. it will probably um, travel for the next two years, and already three four hundred thousand people have seen it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's pretty good, you know. And then the film. So I I I don't know. It's up to. I can't answer that. One of my I feel terrible about it, though. One of my students actually, I think, saw the museum exhibition in Sweden. Yeah, I, it was just, it's there right now. I was promoting this screening tonight, and she said, I think I saw that oh, in Sweden. Sweden. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> said, there yes, right correct. now. Um, so I, it turns out we have somewhat of a shared background in that we were both, at one point in our lives, copy editors. <laughs> that, that lucrative job. Yes. Uh, and I was wondering if you could speak to your role as a writer. And, and maybe how that informs the way that you, you produce and direct and edit and, or have approached this particular film? Well, <laughs> I, uh, I think, you know, editing is like... Because we don't work with the script. Mm-hmm. So when I say um, I'm a writer in the film, that means that... And, and, it, and we're, we're very careful to point that out, that, that there is no traditional script. Because doing a script for a documentary is kind of an exercise. It's a useless exercise anyway, because <laughs> you don't know what is going to happen. And you pretend you know what is going to happen. Don't for tell your... that to our students. Well, no, I'm telling the students, don't do it. Okay. Like, it the, the funders ask you for this, and it, 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 it's a ridiculous exercise. <laughs> and it's one thing to do a treatment that says, these are the things that I'm interested in exploring. This, But mm-hmm. to, to pretend that you're going to go somewhere and something's going to happen. Um, I, I, I disagree with that. So, mm-hmm. But we do do an enormous amount of research, almost like a year of research, before we even get into the field so that then when we're filming, we can forget about all of that and just kind of concentrate on being there and what is coming to us. But that means we have huge shooting ratios. They're, you know, mm-hmm. 250 or 300 to 1, which means that I'm sifting through 400 hours of material to get down to 90 minutes. And I do that with our editor, Roland Schlimm, who's edited all three of the films. We sit together in a room for a year and go through everything. And that is where the writing happens. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the, that's where it really comes together. And it's sort of like putting together a huge puzzle, like a 2,000-piece puzzle without ever seeing the picture of what it is supposed to look like in <laughs> advance, but then just kind of finding your, your way. And I, I wrote the narration to this film in the last two months of editing because originally we were going to use text because, you know, there's a lot of words that you just don't know. People don't, you know, technofossil, things like that. <laughs> and I thought we would use text to define these words. And it just got too... 
busy uh, mm-hmm. on the screen. And, and I, I, I started to think, is there a place for sparse narration here? And, and originally, were we going to get one of the Anthropocene working group scientists to do it? Mm-hmm. And I was very clear I didn't want the voice of God to be a man, because it almost <laughs> always is. So I was thinking about who, who is an, an actor whose work I respect, who I also know is an environmentalist. And she was, mm-hmm. Alicia Vikander was at the top of the list. And she said yes, which is, I mean, if, if I ever make a fiction film, which I never will, um, a drama. I, I hope it's as easy to get somebody like that to participate in it because that, that that was easy and she was amazing. Well, there were elements of the Anthropocene film that bordered on other genres. I felt like like when you first see that massive machinery in Germany, it felt like Mad Max, yeah, Fury horror. Road, or <laughs> you know science fiction, you know horror suspense. So, has anybody seen the new version of Blade Runner here? You know, the Denny Villeneuve version. Mm. So he, as his, um, his research was our films um, <laughs> and Ed's yeah. photographs. So you'll see mm. shapes that look like the ship-breaking uh, photographs of, of Ed's. And I, I know he used that because mm. he, had, he admitted to it later, but it was kind of his, his lookbook was mm. our films for mm-hmm. the dystopian future. It kind of makes sense. Great. It's here now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're here. Um, well, I have... I guess we already mentioned that you have an educational component with VR, but I was going to ask about that sort of stereotype of um, younger generations as um, not not being willing any longer to sit through like a feature film, too long didn't read, or you know a novel, a difficult novel, and how you, uh, I guess maybe how you feel about both those stereotypes and and what. kind of work that you're producing and and whether you need to shift your approaches or if this is just what it is. (laughs) There there are very few opportunities for sustained reflection in the world right now. And these are slow films. I mean, they're really meant to kind of slow your heart rate down and and they require attention. So uh, I remember one person saying to me, a student saying, I'm watching manufactured landscapes. I said, oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? Like, I'm watching it. She watched it for two weeks. Like, she watched, she would sort of, she'd get up in the morning and she'd watch 10 minutes with her coffee and then she'd go off and literally she was watching it. But that's, I don't mind if somebody does that. I mean, I would prefer that you sit down. Um, but, But so I think people call VR the empathy tool because mm-hmm. it, 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 it's a different kind of experiential understanding. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, the, 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 the goal of, first of all, the museum exhibition with all these new lens-based ways of promoting experiential mm-hmm. understanding through 360 VR and AR was really a way of trying to translate what we have done in the films um, and what Ed has done in the photographs mm-hmm. into other media that would be accessible to people. And we've had a, we have a, had a lot of students through the exhibition. A lot of students have seen the film. So um, mm-hmm. it opens it up in some way. But it really is about, again, maintaining that idea of no judgment, just allowing you to be in these places uh, and, and to feel what it is like to be in these places that you're connected to. I actually do research on on games, so virtual reality crosses a bit, and 
I'm aware of some research at Stanford, for instance, where they've tried to communicate ocean acidification yeah. or deforestation through yeah. these experimental groups where you compare reading and watching and um, using virtual reality tools to actually cut down the tree. And, oh, you have yeah. to cut it down? Yeah, you, oh. you feel the haptic feedback of the tree being cut. One um, of our, our AR sculptures was this tree called Big Lonely Doug that was left mm-hmm. in a clear cut in BC. And the fact that we're still cutting old growth in Canada is just insane. Um, but it was left because it was too big to cut. So then it was alone by itself in this huge clearing. Mike has been there. We, we went many times to to photograph this tree. And so in the gallery, in the you know the, the museum, you would hold up this thing, and there was mm. this huge tree going through the ceiling. And that was a way of looking at scale, again, a different kind of scale. Wow, this tree, this is what this tree looks like in an urban environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have to say that was one of the most devastating landscapes out of all the places that we'd been to, mm. because I'm from BC, mm. was seeing um, these clear cuts and thinking, wow, we're still doing it. And we're doing these raw log exports. We're not even processing them mm. in British Columbia. We're just sending them away. So it's a Lorax situation. Mm-hmm. We'll just stop when they're all gone. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> no <that's>... Birth needs. <laughs> yeah. um, I actually, that kind of leads into a question I had. Um, I've sometimes taught a comparative nature documentary course where I show films um, from all around the world and try to think about um, how nature is, is differently culturally encoded across places, so for instance, like the slow television in, in some of the Scandinavian countries mm-hmm, mm-hmm. versus, um, I don't know, green porno by Rossellini, <laughs> if you could claim that. But is there anything that makes your work, or this film in particular, distinctively a product of where you're from? <laughs> well, my, my background is I have... Um, a bicultural identity. My father's mm. from South India. He died in 1995. My mother is British, and they met, um, you know, when he was a resident in, and she was a, training to be a nurse. And both their families totally rejected them, and uh, because it, I guess people didn't really do that very often yeah. then. And so I feel like my um, this may not be what you were asking, but my. My background of never really belonging to a larger collective group or feeling like I'm part of this group has, I, I, I used to lament it and now I realize it's the basis of all of my work because I'm always looking for the marginal perspective that illuminates the center in a different way. And we're very careful to not have, you know, experts pronounce mm-hmm. On, on, on what you're looking at or telling you what you're looking at. Actually, you're learning about the place that you're in from the people who are of that place or the other species that are from that place. Mm-hmm. And I think that that comes from me having feeling that marginality and, mm-hmm. and finally coming to sort of embrace it and say, wow, this, this, this perspective is a valuable and interesting perspective. I think that was... Pretty much a valid answer because I think in the course we sort of discover that there's nothing distinctly, well, we, this might be fighting words, but <laughs> distinctive, distinctively Canadian, for instance, about a nature documentary. So, or we, at least these are things that are shifting categories that could mean totally different things to different people. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So, um, you know, I think this film I thought was interesting because it does um, go to so many different places than some of the earlier work, um, which spent a lot of time in China uh, and India. Um, So I thought um, I'd ask if that was um, a conscious choice or dictated by the sort of nature of the film and the content that you were looking at. Um, And for this particular film, what the most difficult location might have been to do your work in, and was that a sort of physical consideration or bureaucratic consideration? Well, all of those things. And remember, because Anthropocene, even though that is a, um, it's one of the critiques, it is a global thing. So, I mean, it's a global concept. So we were trying to find the most iconic examples uh, and the most visually mm-hmm. arresting examples of these categories of research, but also all over the world. And mm-hmm. so there were places, we were talking about the islands in the South China Sea, the Spratly Islands, which I really wanted to go to because they were very, they're anthropogenic islands, they were coral reefs that have been built up, they're mm-hmm. these now military bases, and nobody would go there because they're very dangerous. I mean, it's a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. That... Um, we couldn't go to all. All of the locations had their own challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, in the potash mines, there's no light, so you know everything has to be lit. That that was sort of a complicated thing. Plus, everything is incredibly dusty all the time. There was that. Mm-hmm. Um, Norilsk was difficult because we kept getting harassed by the police, um, and uh, you know the underwater stuff. There was somebody, one of the students that we were. Uh, having dinner with uh, does uh, ocean floor work Mm -hmm. and we took that coral sequence that you see was actually a tiny piece of coral that we licensed um, because you can't just go and buy coral we had to license it from a a lab and we took it into a place where we did stacked like a time lapse we Mm -hmm. we subjected it to the same um, temperature rise that the reef was mm-hmm. was experiencing the Great Barrier Reef, and then we documented the bleaching, mm-hmm. um, and it was really fascinating because it's thousands of photographs, mm-hmm. but to see it in real time doing that, and then we put it back in in the in the film into the into the water, but it was literally in a in a little aquarium mm-hmm. uh, with this these this focus stacking and the. Um, you see the zooxanthellae, the little black organisms that live inside the coral, being expelled at mm. the last minute as it's as it's bleached. You can see that in the shot, and it's it's kind of fascinating. That was complicated. Mm-hmm. That was that was complicated because it kept failing and we it wasn't working. And we I did wonder about that shot actually. Yeah. So, but it's hard to determine the scale sometimes. Yeah, so pull tricks on us. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it is now time to open up the floor for audience questions. And Wes will kindly find you if you have a question so you can be heard. Hi. Uh, so thanks so much f- for this film. Um, I just wanted to ask a little question about the visual strategies that you use. So I noticed that there are a lot of sequences where you start with a shot that uh, is evacuated of a human presence and then the camera zooms out or shifts or some something else, and you suddenly notice there's excavators or there's people on the beach or, uh, you know, people um, uh, in the forest, right, Uh, extracting. And so I wanted, uh, you know, for me, it reminded me of some of the work that I engage with, um, which really tries to break down this um, binary way of thinking of nature as being 
somehow separate um, from culture, right? So much of the work environmental humanities right now is about um, trying to think through coexistence as opposed to like a return to some sort of pristine past. And so that's what that made me think of. But I wanted to ask you, you know, what, what was behind that, um, that strategy? So the, the, often the, the sequences begin with you don't really know exactly what you're looking at, and there's something destabilizing about that. And the destabilization is what sort of opens you up to um, an awareness, like a, a kind of and an openness to what is going to come. So we it, beginning with something small, and then it kind of telescopes out so that you get the bigger view. And again, that's the scale-detail relationship. It's, it's a kind of rev- revelation that happens that makes you, I think, understand um, it, it, in a kind of visceral way what you're looking at. And, and the, the, the point about humans and when they're there and when they're not there, I mean, it, 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 it feels to me like even those of us who are you know, very much aware and environmentally aware, we still operate as though when we live in these urban environments that we're going to nature. We make forays into nature. You know, we go on a canoe trip or a hike or something, <laughs> then we go back to the city, and everything we do every day is taking from some landscape somewhere. And so trying to draw attention to that, you know, you see the rocks, um, those, those cliffs of Zumaya were, you know, an ocean floor that was pushed up. You can see 60 million years of the Earth's history mm-hmm. in one view. You're just standing looking at these cliffs. And each of those layers of rock are, represent about 10,000 years. So that is human civilization in, in one of those. <laughs> and, and so you look at this, and it, it's this geological wonder and then it's a beach, like it, I mean, it's a beach where people are, we were filming and, and filming early in the morning when people weren't there, but then it would kind of fill up and people were on their beach blankets and playing. <laughs> and I mean, that, that was a, 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 an irony that was actually kind of great um, that the two, the two things were coming together. So I wanted that revelation to happen the way that um, it happened for us, where we start just looking at the cliffs and then people start coming down with their beach balls and blankets and umbrellas and stuff. <laughs> we know a lot about beaches here. Yes, I'm sure. Thanks again for showing that film was absolutely amazing. And what my question is, uh, there must be dozens of more locations around the world that would be representative of the kind of thing that you showed here. Is there a plan for part B of Anthropocene or <laughs> part two? You know, the the project took five years, and it's still not over because the museum show is traveling, and we have to go when it when it opens and make sure that everything you know is is working properly and looks all right. Um, it uh, I think originally I wanted to follow the vote of the scientists, and and we we had a reasonable mm-hmm. expectation that they were going to vote before we had finished. And so we were going to follow that trajectory and what and the debate and the, all the different sides of it. And then they didn't vote. And they, they, <laughs> they probably, they may not vote for another five years, ten years, and they may vote not to ratify. Uh, so it, it, the, the, the film became about the research instead of about the vote. So I suppose if there was a part B, it could be that. If they finally vote on it, and whether it's a yes or a no, that we, we follow the scientists that way. But uh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Uh, 
thanks for being here and thanks for making this. Um, I think it's really important work that you do. Um, and uh, my question is, I guess, can you speak a little bit more towards your process in that uh, year that you spent editing? And yeah, your process of, I guess, like, that extracting the story and uh, the most challenging part of that time period, I guess, for you. I really love the editing process. It's kind of my favorite part because <laughs> it does feel like this mystery that you're figuring out. And I, I go through these different um, phases and, and, and my co-directors are not in the edit room every day. They come in and look at cuts um, and then they'll give notes and then they go away and then it's just me and Roland sitting there <laughs> trying to figure it out. And sometimes he's there on his own for a while and I'm looking at footage on my own or, or um, reading through transcripts. But it, it begins with my memory of what we shot eventually the allegiance shifts to the footage that exists. Because I'll look at something and I'll say, where's that black bird that was in the tree that went, you know, over thinking that Nick has filmed everything that my eye sees, which he does not. Um, and then I get sort of mad and I think, why do you, how did you miss that? And so then I, eventually the universe becomes the footage that exists. And, and that is... We go through these, you know, we'll, we'll put assemblies together of scenes where we talk about the ideas and the philosophy and, and, and then there'll be one scene that is, starts off as being kind of four hours mm -hmm. um, in an assembly or six hours even that ends up getting cut down to 15 minutes. And it just sort of whittles down to the most essential part, the thing that really conveys that place. And it's interesting because the things that everybody says you have to kill your babies or whatever, the things that you love the most, that you try to maneuver so much around, are often the things that end up getting jettisoned. Mm -hmm. But editing is all about rhythm. And I, every editor we've worked with is musical in some way or a musician. And it really is. It's copy editing, which is also rhythm, rhythm of language. And there's a kind of... Um, uh, there's a music to it, so it, it has to have the right rhythm. And and because we edit for so long, we just keep going until it it it. I, I just sort of know that it's done. Like it, from <laughs> cut to cut to cut to cut. Like it, there's just something that feels like okay, this is it. This is the whole. This is what it was meant to be. And I don't mean to be sort of mystical about it, but it is a <laughs> bit like that. Like it is finding the story in the footage that exists with a fidelity to what that place was. And again, humility and kindness. Like I, I think when you tip over sometimes, um, when I see work, first of all, I don't ever... Um, direct things to happen. I, I very rarely ask somebody to do something for the camera. I never ask somebody, could you please include my question in your answer because my question will be edited. I never do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's part of the reason that our shooting ratios are so high that we're just kind of uh, waiting for things to happen and then following those things. So that relinquishing control. But then in the edit room, it's about remembering that, remembering what the light was like in that place, the colors were like, what it smelled like, what it, um, how, how the people were, what the elephants were like, you know, and, 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 and trying to convey that. Uh, so 
it's a, it's a great part. It's, it's very frustrating. I mean, we get to like, you know, this is never going to work. I go through all of that um, numerous times, but uh, um, in the end, somehow it comes together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.